I hope that by the end of this talk, uh, you will know and care about this quite remarkable man. Uh, so Scott has given you a wonderful introduction to uh, who Nathaniel Bowditch was. I'm just going to give you a little bit more before I delve into his three parallel careers uh, as a man of the sea, a man of science, and also uh, a man of business and organizational structures in general, including uh, the Athenaeum. So um, who exactly was he? Well, um, the first thing I have to do is just find this. Yes. Okay, he came from this town, Salem, Massachusetts. This is the very beginning of the 19th century. It's a seaport. Uh, so the Bowditches had been uh, in Salem since really in the early 1600s. He was born there in 1773, and he came from a downwardly mobile family. The Bowditches hadn't done that well recently, but the way things worked in the 1700s, as long as you were connected, it didn't matter so much, and the Bowditches were very well connected. There had been generations when they were quite clever about marrying into wealthy families, the Turners and the Gardeners and the Ingersoll and so on. So by the time Nathaniel came along in 1773, and particularly by the time he was of the age to begin to work, even though the Bowditches were not doing that well, there were those who were going to help him along. And they helped him uh, first by giving him an apprenticeship at a chandlery uh, on the wharf. Um, this was at a time when Salem, what, though a little town, um, was a town in which vessels sailed out all over the world. Really quite remarkable to think of such a small place that had contacts with the East Indies, right? Uh, around the globe. So you needed uh, chandleries to equip all of these vessels. And by the time um, he was 21, uh, he had acquired a very practical education for a young man in a seaport town. He'd learned bookkeeping. Uh, he'd learned navigation. He'd learned these very practical skills. Uh, he had not had a regular education. He certainly didn't go to college, but he knew how to conduct foreign business. So um, in the 1790s, uh, one of his very distant relatives, who just happened to be the first millionaire in the United States, uh, a man named Elias Haskett Derby, he said, let me give you a job. I'm putting you on a vessel. You're headed out for the back of beyond. It's this island called Réunion, which is in the middle of the Indian Ocean. Um, nobody had heard of Réunion, I think, for decades until a piece of that Malaysian flight that crashed washed up on the shores of Réunion. And then all of a sudden, it's been rediscovered. I think Bowditch came, then the next event that happened was, was that. <laughs> uh, so... Um, um, here he is in Réunion, really is back of beyond. Um, first of five voyages, he goes to Spain, he goes to Portugal, he goes to these islands in the Indian Ocean, he goes to the Philippines, he goes to Indonesia, uh, largely as a business agent for these vessels, but also uh, as a navigator, uh, halfway around the world, right? And it's amazing what uh, these merchants were
were doing at the time when you think about it, uh, in these tiny little vessels. Um, the vessel that uh, Bowditch went to Réunion in uh, was the length of a, about the distance from home plate to first base. And they're sending that halfway around the world into uncharted waters. And they're not doing it in order to recover necessities because Americans need these things to live. No, they're going for coffee and sugar and pepper and wine, luxuries. That's really what uh, sets Salem vessels out into the world. Um, so far, Bowditch's story is like the story of a lot of Salemites. This really is the story of Salem uh, in the late 1700s and early 1800s. But Bowditch goes on to develop these three parallel careers um, in the sea and in science and in business. Um, and in his time, he made him, he made a name for himself in all three. But his fame in all three did not last. Ultimately, those three careers really do fit together. But uh, we have to realize that one of his careers is the way he is remembered. That's largely his maritime career, his career as the navigator. Then there's the way he wanted, he dearly wanted to be remembered, which was as a mathematician, an astronomer, a scientist. And then there's the way I argue he should be remembered, which is as a businessman, an executive, something of an organizational innovator. You could even argue an organizational genius. So let me start off um, with the C. This will be a familiar um, <laughs> image to you because the plaster is on the second floor, right? Right? But this is on his grave at Mount Auburn, and it depicts Bowditch as the navigator. Uh, there's the uh, sextant by his side and the globe. Um, there he is as the navigator. And of course he's remembered that way because uh, he authored this book, The New American Practical Navigator, which came out first in 1802, but then went through many editions. Every few years, Bowditch would rewrite it, add stuff, subtract, clarify, and so on. And it became a standard on American vessels, every American vessel, around the period after the War of 1812. If you went in the late 18-teens by then, and for the next decades, every vessel, whether it was a commercial vessel or a naval vessel, would have a Bowditch on board. And it simply became known as Bowditch. Um, many of you may have heard the story of the, uh, the whale ship Essex that gets wrecked and the uh, survivor, uh, one of the survivors later writes a memoir and describes how they were able to get back. Um, and he describes what he calls the instruments of our salvation. And what were those instruments? A compass, a quadrant, and a bowditch, the book. Okay, you had to have the book. Um, that story, by the way, is the story that Moby Dick is based on. So I guess we wouldn't have Moby Dick if we didn't have Nathaniel Bowditch, right? Um, so why was this book so indispensable? Why do you have to have it? There's a lot in this book. It's a thick thing, okay, very thick. It tells you how to do a coastal survey. It goes into the legal niceties of marine insurance, all sorts of things. But above all, it tells you how to locate where you are on the ocean, how to figure out what your latitude and your longitude 
are. Now, latitude, um, navigators have been able to figure out for quite a while. Longitude was something quite new in the second half of the 18th century. This had been a problem that had plagued navigators for a very long time, constant shipwrecks, because people didn't know where they were. Uh, but the problem of lo longitude was solved in the second half of the 18th century. We tend to remember, uh, partly because Davis Sobel wrote such a wonderful book called Longitude about this, we tend to remember the chronometer, that uh, precision timepiece as the answer to finding your location at sea. And so it was, except in the 1700s, the early 1800s, these things were really, really expensive. So most, certainly most Americans could not afford these things. But there was another technique, celestial navigation, that involved steering by the stars. But this was not an easy thing to do. You had to have one of those instruments, one of those sextants or a quadrant. You had to take observations of the relationship between the stars and the moon as these things moved through the sky. And you have to do this on a vessel that's going like this, right? <laughs> you have to do that. And that's just step one. Then you take those observations and you have to translate them through many, many, many steps uh, mathematically into actual locations. You have to do logarithms and trigonometry, all the stuff that gave me nightmares in high school, I can tell you. Uh, so uh, it's a lot, a lot of steps, and you have to consult pages and pages and pages of pre-calculated numbers. Um, and then you can do that. It's called the lunar method. So here's where historical memory often gets it wrong. Um, sometimes Bowditch is described as the father of celestial navigation, that he invented the lunar method. Not the case. In fact, there was really nothing original about Bowditch as a navigator. Um, his book... Um, although it continues to be published today, you open it up, it looks like nothing, uh, like the 1802 version, um, but it was based on this book, The Practical Navigator, by an Englishman named John Hamilton Moore. Okay? And basically, uh, what Bowditch did was take this book and fix it. But the fixing it was no small feat, because remember, the key to finding where you are are the numbers. You have to have correct numbers in the book. And uh, when uh, Bowditch went through the numbers in Hamilton's book, he found 8,000 errors. So now how did he find those 8,000 errors? This is really what boggles the mind. He had to recalculate hundreds of thousands of numbers recalculate them. What kind of mind does that? Okay? It's a, it's a, it's a Bowditch mind. And Bowditch, even before he did this, was known for his calculating abilities. People used to give him mathematical tricks to do. Just try this one. You'll never get it. It's too complicated. And Bowditch was famous for pressing his fingers together and taking two minutes and coming up with something that would take somebody else hours and hours and hours to do. They were amazed. And in his day, I mean, today 
today we might say this is an idiot savant, right? But in that day, they would say, this is a sign of genius. This is the Einstein of the day. Okay? Einstein was not known for that kind of talent, and we don't really equate that kind of talent with genius now, um, but they did back in the late 1700s and early 1800s, so people were astounded by him. The thing is, this is what Bowditch loved to do, to calculate this is what, this is just gave him tremendous pleasure. So he was happy to calculate hundreds of thousands of numbers. Interestingly enough, back over in England, they were concerned about these numbers. You get these numbers wrong, guess what happens to the Royal Navy? It's not going to rule the waves, put it that way, okay? So they're concerned about that. Um, and they, uh, they're concerned about it to the point where the British government actually funds a man named Charles Babbage. If any of you are in IT, you know Charles Babbage is revered as really the father of modern computers. Um, here's the computer that he first uh, developed, and it was designed specifically for this task to do those numbers, because he said, nobody can do this, no human being can do this, this must be done by steam. But Bowditch was essentially a calculating engine. He really was a human computer. So he did this, um, and uh, that is why his book was so valuable. You could count on those numbers. People did count on them, and they came home safely. So his book really was indispensable. But what can we take away from this? Was he the father of, cel of celestial navigation? No. But if we want to understand Bowditch, we have to understand here was a man who was driven by numbers, 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 numbers. And the title of my book, The Power of Numbers, is not something I came up with. Um, his childhood clergyman described Bowditch as finding from the power of numbers something certain, and that seized his imagination and used all of his talents. So if we want to understand Bowditch, the first thing we have to understand is numbers. So that is why he wanted to be remembered, first and foremost, as a scientist. And here we have his very modest study back in Salem where he did his scientific work in the first couple of decades of the 19th century. He didn't want to be famous for his navigator. He knew this was just a practical manual. He wanted to run with the big boys in the international world of science. He wanted to be recognized by Europeans as a real mathematician, a real astronomer, a real scientist. And in America, he did develop a, a massive reputation. Harvard offered him um, a position as professor of mathematics. They gave him not one but two honorary degrees, so he became Dr. Bowditch exactly 200 years ago. Uh, Thomas Jefferson referred to him as a meteor in the hemisphere. Uh, he was known as the American Newton. Um, and do we remember him as a mathematician? What happened to this American Newton? Who was he? What made him the American Newton? Well, he was actually entirely self-taught. Um, he ran across a, quite an amazing collection of uh, scientific and mathematical works from Europe at, of all places, the Salem Philosophical Society. So he read 
Isaac Newton. Um, and then even more amazingly, he taught himself calculus. Now, calculus was known in the 18th century, the Newtonian version, which was known as fluxions. Uh, so he, people knew fluxions, wasn't commonly known, but people did know them. But the, uh, the up-to-date version, differential calculus, which was coming out of France at those, in those days, nobody knew this in America. Nobody knew this. He had to teach himself. Now, I'm not going to try to teach it to you, but I will show you how different the two just look. You can eyeball it and see that even if you know fluxions, you won't necessarily know differential calculus. So here are fluxions. It's all shapes, right? And here's the French-style differential calculus. It's all numbers and letters. Very, very different. And really, Bowditch is one of a handful of people in the United States who know this. Um, so what does he actually do as a scientist? Well, he publishes some fairly, really minor articles in a minor Boston scientific journal correcting, making minor corrections in the uh, arithmetic, really, of uh, European scientists. He publishes some articles, observations and calculations about eclipses and meteors and so on. But his major accomplishment had to do, um, oh, this is, this is a mathematical thesis from Harvard. This gives you some, this is not the cover, this is it. Uh, this gives you a sense of just how advanced or not, uh, mathematics was at Harvard and among even learned people in the era. So to know differential calculus was a big deal. Now this man is one of really the creators of it, uh, the uh, Pierre de Laplace, and he wrote this uh, magnificent um, really synthesis of enlightenment mathematics and physics, his treatise on celestial mechanics. Um, Bowditch got a hold of it, not so easy to get in America, but he did get a hold of it. He translated it from the French into the English, and then he annotated it, adding probably a third or a half more material, explaining what this is all about. And this book in the 18th century was it. This was the vision of a really a clockwork universe, a clockwork solar system, a vision of regularity, uniformity, mathematical rule-bound, uh, a rule-bound solar system. And this is better than your any clock that you or I might have because it never needs adjusting. It never needs rewinding. Laplace, with his mathematics, kind of waved a wand over all the questions uh, that 18th century scientists had about how the solar system actually works. He solved those problems, drawing on others, of course, in the 18th century, and showed the universe works like a perfect clock. And Bowditch was enthralled. To him, this was jaw-dropping, okay? Numbers, system, numbers and system. These were really the things uh, that made him tick. So how do you get an international reputation translating and annotating Laplace? You don't really. Um, he did, in fact, become a fellow of the Royal Society in London, very big deal. 
but actually he had friends behind the scenes who were lobbying for that. Uh, it's not as if he uh, had uh, contributions that measured up to what Europeans were uh, coming up with. And he himself knew this. He knew that he was not an original thinker. Uh, he was modest in that sense, and he was, uh, he could be very realistic and very hard on himself in that way. But there's another longer term problem for Bowditch in terms of making a lasting reputation as a mathematician. Who remembers Laplace? You know, if I say Newton, if I say Einstein, these people you will remember. Anybody who had an electrical unit named after them, you know, of course you'll know, you know, ohms and so on, uh, amperes, but Laplace? So if Laplace disappears, what's going to happen to Bowditch? It's not a long-term plan for establishing your fame. Um, nor actually is where I think Bowditch should be remembered for, uh, for his contributions, which as, which is as an executive. And Bowditch actually, you know, science, that was his hobby. He had a day job. Uh, he ran two corporations. First, he ran a marine insurance company in Salem in the 18 zeros and tens, and then he moved to Boston in 1823. And between 1823 and his death in 38, he ran what became New England's largest financial institution. That's big, okay? New England, the, 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 uh, textile mills of this era, Boston Brahmin Wealth, this place, and this, uh, the, uh, organization he's running, the company he's running, is the largest financial institution in New England. Here's where he really made his mark. That's hard to imagine, uh, say, J.P. Morgan Chase saying, what we really need is an astronomer to run this place. You know, it's not going to happen. Uh, but Bowditch was actually hired because of his reputation as a mathematician. Partly they figured, here's a man who's accurate, who's methodical, who's precise. We want this kind of person. He's dealing with our money. But they also, this was an experiment, this corporation, uh, in which wealth was being pooled. It wasn't just individuals who were investing their money, and this really was investment banking. There were, there was a whole class pooling its wealth, and Bowditch was responsible for investing it. Now, you don't want somebody who plays favorites, you know? You don't want somebody saying, well, I'm going to take your money and invest it in good stuff, but I'm going to take your money and, eh, we'll invest it in whatever. No, you want somebody who's going to be even-handed, impartial, objective, and that's the reputation of mathematicians, right? That they're naturally impartial, naturally objective, because they're numbers guys. Numbers guys are not going to practice favoritism. So they were happy to have him, but they didn't know what they were in for because he really shook things up. And he shook things up by turning this company into its own Laplacian clockwork mechanism, which was a thing that businesses were not in this era. So what do I mean by that? Well, if we look simply at office procedures, um, Here's the State Street District, uh, the financial district. This is what an office looked like in the sort of before picture. 
No file cabinets, no paper clips, no organizational systems, nothing. You take documents, you put them on spindles. When the spindles fill up, you put them in boxes. Who can find things later on? But who actually needs to find things later on? Um, you know, bookkeeping, people mix their personal business in with the, uh, the business business. Uh, that's the way things worked, including at the Athenaeum, I should say. Uh, the Athenaeum librarian in the 18-teens and early 20s was a man named William Smith Shaw. Um, he was a very sloppy individual. Uh, he did a lot of acquisitions, books, but also things like medals. He didn't really bother figuring out who had paid for it. Did he pay for it? Did the Athenaeum pay for it? Was it stored here? Was it back home? didn't really know. And at some point, John Lowell comes along and says, you know, you might want to figure that out. And Shaw just says, no, I would prefer not to. And Lowell says, we better leave that one alone. We're going to be tactful here. So this kind of chaos was what occurred in businesses as well as in institutions like the Athenaeum. Um, it's also true that they didn't have much of an idea of uh, business procedure, things like due dates for loans. These were suggestions more than anything else. Um, rules were not necessarily always the rules. But then in comes Bowditch. Um, and what does he do? Well, one of his favorite things to do is to introduce printed blank forms. Now, our life is made up of printed blank forms, right? Um, right before I gave this talk, I filled out a printed blank form. If you registered online, you printed, you filled out a blank form. Our life is made up of this. But Bowditch was one of the people who really introduced these into businesses and institutions. Why? He wanted standardization rules, uniformity. It's the Laplacean way to run a business. Uh, he kept very business-like books. Uh, he, uh, and when he came in as trustee uh, to the Athenaeum, he was horrified at what he found. Um, there were books missing. There were books mutilated. There were books with the maps cut out of them, with the images cut, cut out of them. Um, he brought in a sidekick from Salem to take care of all the objects, a man named Seth Bass. And Seth Bass said, oh my gosh, he said, a museum burlesque. Nothing is either arranged or cataloged. So what did Bowditch do? do? He numbered every library shelf, every box. He marked every book with its shelf number. He put out a new, quote, scientific, unquote, catalog, an annual audit of the library. This is how things ran. Now, we take this for granted. Well, of course you have a card catalog. Of course you have numbers, call numbers. Well, not before, only after. This is very much uh, the kind of thing that Bowditch introduced. So now you can see why we don't really remember him for his contributions to uh, business or as an executive, because it's all second nature to us now. We don't walk into the Athenaeum and look at the, uh, the numbers on the books and say, oh, I see Bowditch's fingerprint on that. 
every book in any library will have those numbers. Uh, we fill out forms. We don't think about it. We expect annual audits at our organizations. We expect that if the due date on our visa bill is March 12th, it had better be March 12th, and that's that. But these are all innovations that Bowditch introduced. What we're talking about here is the ubiquity of numbering systems. We live and die by these, right? Our social security number, our PIN number, we can each recite 20 for ourselves, right? All of these numbering systems, impersonal bureaucracies, that's just modern life, right? But somebody invented modern life. Modern life doesn't just happen, doesn't just drop from the skies. There are inventors of modernity, and one of them, and an important one, is Nathaniel Bowditch. So a couple of things that I want to uh, add. One is it took a while for Bostonians to embrace these changes. You know, people don't, I mean, we don't love impersonal bureaucracies. We don't love numbers. Uh, but beyond that, Bowditch was not especially tactful in the way he dealt uh, with some of these issues. Um, he wanted every institution to run like clockwork, and that meant that some of the people had their toes stepped on. He's most famous for alienating people at Harvard. When he became a fellow at Harvard, this usual Bowditch response, he comes in and he discovers the place is a mess. Uh, the president has not bothered to separate his financial dealings from Harvard's financial dealings. He makes financial decisions without asking the Board of Fellows for any kind of permission. There's no idea of money in, money out. Uh, there are uh, bills that have never been paid. Uh, there are receipts that have come in that have never been cashed. There are people who owe money who haven't been done for it. And Bowditch is just horrified. So he goes on this house cleaning. Uh, and over a couple of years, he has the steady drumbeat. First, out goes the steward. Then, who's a Higginson? And you don't just do this to Higginsons, you know? Out goes the steward. Is there a Higginson here? I wouldn't be surprised, right? In the Athenaeum, you throw a stone, you're going to hit one of these people. So... <laughs> Uh, the treasurer, out he goes, and then the president. And this is not the way to do it. And proper Boston is really quite horrified. People are gossiping. Uh, it's in the newspapers. Um, and there was a better way to do it, they believe. This is what they had done at the Athenaeum with that very sloppy librarian, William Smith Shaw. What did they do with the librarian? Well, they said... Well, between you and me, he really is no good as a librarian, but it would insult him to remove him as a librarian. So let's appoint a sub-librarian, and he'll do all the work. And so they did that, and then the next year they commissioned a painting of him in recognition of all his wonderful services. Somebody probably knows where it is. It must be here. Is that William Smith? Okay, so there's the... Uh, there's the villain. There's Bowditch's villain. So they paint this, they hang it, he's thrilled, he's flattered, and he recedes from the scene. He really recedes from the scene because he dies shortly thereafter. <laughs> <laughs> 
But Bowditch then gets his claws into the estate because uh, Shaw's estate says, remember all that stuff that we hadn't separated? You know, some belong to Shaw, some belong to the Athenaeum. You know, I think you people at the Athenaeum have a lot of things that Shaw paid for personally. So you owe us $10,000. And Bowditch took out the knives and he said, okay, I tell you what, we won't sue the estate because if you drop that claim, because actually you have all kinds of Athenaeum property, and that shut up the lawyers right away. So he didn't play nice, and uh, the Bostonians, the proper Bostonians, were not a little bit horrified by the way he acted, but they got used to it quite quickly because he was a rip-roaring success at what he did. Look at the Athenaeum. It was organized. People stopped stealing the books and mutilating the books. And at Harvard, which has the endowment now, right, the endowment that is the envy of every university, that all began with Bowditch. Because once he cleans house, he brings in his own people who are professional money managers, and they know what to do with it, and they do it by the book. And really, Harvard's endowment grows from there. At the library, he recatalogs everything, or he gets somebody to recatalog it. Everything is going to have a number. He imposes order. He takes the Harvard Library, Harvard University, the Athenaeum, the Massachusetts General Hospital, his insurance company that, that he runs, everything he touches, he turns into a clockwork mechanism. And people say, you know, this has its uses. So they get used to him, tactless or not. To some extent, they say, oh, what, do you, what can you expect out of a mathematician? What can you expect out of some, somebody from that little town north of here called Salem? Right? It's not Boston. So he, there he is, uh, very much a man of number, a man of system, but I don't want you to think that he's an automaton, okay? Um, this is on your fifth floor here. It's a bust done by a man named John Frazee, and it turns Bowditch into a man of marble. Um, there's a great story about this uh, bust. It was commissioned by the Athenaeum uh, for one of their um, great men. <laughs> And um, the uh, sculptor was this man named Frazee, F-R-A-Z-E-E, -E, a double E at the end. And uh, Bowditch thought, oh, this must be a Frenchman, an Italian. He was quite thrilled. And then he meets Frazee and discovers that Frazee is from Jersey. And he's not so thrilled to have a guy from New Jersey doing his bust. And he grills the man on his qualifications. Uh, but ultimately, he is reassured. And um, he's turned into this kind of Roman senator, right, um, who looks pretty much like every other bust uh, that you will find in the reading rooms. You're very generic uh, kind of um, presentation of a soul. There's really no soul here. Um, and one might think, well, he was, after all, number and system. But he was not a robot. He was not an automaton. Um, we see this, for example, I was looking at his wife's travel diary. I opened it up, and these flower petals fell out. And I read the text. It said, plucked by my husband. 
So I thought, ah, oh, he did love his wife, and he loved his children, too. Uh, you've learned about his book borrowing um, at the Athenaeum. So I've looked at um, what he borrowed, and yes, he borrowed works on the anti-slavery movement. He borrowed scientific works. He borrowed uh, various kinds of essays, things that would edify him. But then you run into things like uh, Zorob the hostage and uh, the wild sports of the West. And you know, this is for his kid's son, Willie. You know this is what's happening. So he's bringing books home for his kids, as maybe you have. Um, he is uh, a somewhat overwrought father when his eldest son is getting ready for Harvard. He's worried that he won't do well there. The boy's only 13 years old. Now, they're young at Harvard, but that that was the very youngest in his class. And sure enough, he's very quickly led astray. He gets in trouble. He sets fire to an outhouse. Oh, not the way to start. Uh, then he's caught throwing a cannonball from one of the windows. Um, quote, accompanied with a deliberate insult to a college officer, and the parents are just wringing their hands. So this is a human being like any other human being. He was also not so rule-bound in his life. He did not necessarily work like a clockwork mechanism, a Laplacian uh, mechanism. He was known for jumping up and laughing with glee and rubbing his hands together. Uh, he liked to drink. Um, he had every day what he called his certain quantity, wonderful pun there, the certain quantity, this is daily, two glasses twice a day. Okay, uh, might affect my productivity, didn't seem to do anything to him. Um, and one final quirk. Uh, he liked to race in carriages. And John Frazee, the sculptor, actually discovered this one day. Uh, Bowditch ran into Frazee's studio and said, how about you come out with me on a carriage ride? And Frazee later wrote his wife that the two of them hopped into the gig and off they went like old scratch, which means the devil. Uh, what Frazee hadn't known when he agreed to go on this ride was that Bowditch liked to race with carts and carriages till their wheels rubbed together. So there we have it, Nathaniel Bowditch, the navigator, the scientist, the business executive, and then finally, the drag racer. <laughs> so thank you so much, and I'd love to answer your questions.